0: In this week's show, top stories include action at the Human Rights Council on Eritrea, Myanmar, and a push for all countries to take early action to stop violence against women and girls. In Ukraine, UN Refugee Agency Chief Filippo Grandi has been offering support to communities devastated by the Russian invasion, and we'll also hear the latest hard-hitting findings from the UN fact-finding mission in Libya. That's all coming up in this week's UN Catch-Up Dateline Geneva with me, Daniel Johnson. First, the news. While the Russian military advance in eastern Ukraine continues to escalate, the UN refugee agency UNHCR on Thursday warned that the winter months are very likely to be extremely harsh on many millions of people affected by the war. Since the Russian invasion on the 24th of February, more than 11.5 million people have had to flee their homes in Ukraine, and some 6.3 million are internally displaced. Speaking from bomb-shattered ruins in Irpin and Bucha near the capital Kyiv, here's UNHCR High Commissioner Filippo Grandy.
1: We must not forget that although we are in the middle of summer, on a warm day, winter is just round the corner. And winters in Ukraine are very harsh and severe, extremely cold. So we must do everything possible to prevent the cold of winter from becoming the next challenge for people that already have to face so much in their lives.
0: The UN Refugee Agency warned that people are struggling to rebuild their damaged homes, reunite with their families and recover from the trauma of more than four months of war with no end in sight. They are also in urgent need of financial assistance, having lost their jobs and incomes, while the price of essentials continues to rise along with fuel shortages. A staggering 84 million children risk missing out on getting an education between now and 2030, UN agency UNESCO warned on Thursday. According to the UN Education Scientific and Cultural Organisation, only one in six countries is on track to meet crucial development goals that include decent education for all by 2030. New data from UNESCO also shows that although countries aim to increase proficiency in reading and maths, from 51% of primary school students in 2015 to 67% by 2030, 300 million youngsters will likely be left behind. On the pledge to provide secondary school, made by all 193 UN member states, the UN agency said that only one in six countries was on course to achieve this by the end of the decade. The problem is worst in sub-Saharan Africa, where only four in ten youngsters will complete secondary education, said UNESCO, insisting that COVID-19 had made the global education crisis worse by excluding so many children from class. To the Human Rights Council, where countries have continued to keep worrying developments in Eritrea, Myanmar and violence against women and girls firmly in the international spotlight. Among the resolutions passed on Thursday, the Council's forty-seven member states extended the mandate of the Special Rapporteur on Eritrea for another year. It comes amid numerous allegations of violations committed by Eritrean troops in Ethiopia's Tigray conflict, including the rape and killing of civilians in northern and western Tigray, the forced return of Eritrean refugees sheltering there, and and the obstruction and commandeering of humanitarian aid. On Myanmar, the council passed a resolution renewing the call for an independent investigation into reports of ongoing serious human rights violations there a year and a half after the military coup. At risk in particular in Myanmar are Rohingya Muslims and other minorities, hundreds of thousands of whom were forced to flee a military crackdown five years ago. Other significant resolutions passed by the council on Thursday included the Canada-sponsored call to extend the mandate of the rights expert tasked with encouraging countries to end all violence against women and girls. After some discussion, the council agreed to the explicit addition of girls to the resolution in recognition of the fact that, as the Netherlands maintained, gender-based violence is deeply entrenched in society and does not start only when a girl becomes a woman. The headline's there, and as we've been hearing, the Human Rights Council has been in session for the last four weeks. That's one more week than usual, and everyone's exhausted, I'll bet. One of the country situations that's attracted a lot of attention has been Libya – there have been protests across the divided country too in recent days. As you may have heard, people want change and a say in their future. And even if agreement on elections still hasn't been quite reached, despite a massive push in recent weeks and months, another piece of the puzzle that's crucial to a peaceful future for all Libyans is accountability for past rights abuses. And that's where the fact-finding mission on Libya comes in. It was appointed by the Human Rights Council to investigate violations, and sadly, it's found evidence of so many, including the discovery of more mass graves in Tarhuna, near the capital Tripoli. To find out more, I've been speaking to one of the investigators, Tracy Robinson.
1: The fact-finding mission has discovered three sites in Tarhuna, where they've already discovered four sites of mass graves and these three sites are sites which ffm believes are probable sites of mass graves we don't know how many these are sites which now need to be excavated but there have been hundreds of persons who we know have not been yet discovered who have been disappeared
0: right so who are these people
1: These are primarily persons from Tarhuna who have been victims of the conflict, particularly in the last, um, between 2015 and 2020, which is a subject of our report, where many, many men, for various reasons, were disappeared or murdered by the militia in that area.
0: So this would have been in one of potentially dozens of detention centres throughout Libya, linked to the civil war after the fall of Muammar Gaddafi. And your latest report to the Human Rights Council talks of clear patterns of human rights violations. Just what kind of violations are we talking about? These are the most serious, aren't they?
1: They're absolutely the most serious. So we, we've seen, you know, in these detention centres, we haven't visited any detention centres. That's a critical part of the work of the FFM, which we haven't yet been allowed to do.
0: So you've spoken to I've witnesses? We have
1: spoken to, to many witnesses who have been in these detention centres um, or their families. And we've discovered horrific abuse and torture in those spaces of detention for migrants and Libyans. Many Libyans in detention without being charged, without coming before judicial authorities in facilities which are extrajudicial.
0: You've spoken about the inability of the Libyan judiciary to really get a hold of what's going on in the country and across the country, despite a lot of goodwill and and efforts to do so. So how can the international community try to help form some sort of cohesive judiciary to get on top of the abuses that are clearly still going on to Libyans, to migrants, refugees and asylum seekers?
1: Well, the first thing to do is to commend the judiciary for being one of the few unified institutions in Libya. That's very important and promising, but not enough. It's critical to have stability of all institutions in Libya. The judiciary can't stand alone. Accountability does demand a stable state on the path to transition, And so a stable judiciary which is free from threat, which has the resources to conduct the investigations because the prosecutor and authorities form part of the administration of justice, um, and the freedom to work across the country is critical. But it does depend on more happening in Libya.
0: Another feature of your report focuses on enforced disappearances and harassment of women and girls, and particularly female politicians as well. What are your latest findings there?
1: We have found generally a shrinking of the civic space, but we've noticed how women have been targeted for online abuse, but also suffered detention, disappearances and murder as well in Libya. And this certainly has a chilling effect on women who are putting themselves up for political office and for women activists who are key to the process, all the ongoing political processes in Libya.
0: This is since 2016. It's still going on today.
1: Absolutely. So we have noticed, because it was projected that there would have been elections last year in December, that there was significant political activism and work from many different quarters. And that heightened activism did generate tensions and did produce a counteracting force, which sought to narrow the space available for activists.
0: Your report also talks about the vulnerability of children who face as many crimes as adults. So why are children being targeted?
1: So, children are, as you mentioned, facing exactly the same violations as adults, and some of it happens, for example, in the context of migration, because children are being detained with adults and suffering exactly the same context of torture and abuse as adults. We've noticed significant sexual violations against children in Tarhuna. Children have been found in mass graves as well. Everywhere we have noted violations of adults. We have seen violations of children.
0: I mean, people might say that this sounds like a broken state. What would you say?
1: This is a state, as you've seen from Libyan's protest over the last few days, this is a state in which people are frustrated and are demanding change. This is a state which does need to move into a space of accountability, reconciliation, to be able... ...to form a unified state which serves all Libyans.
0: And your hope is what from this Human Rights Council session?
1: Our hope is that we, we inform the Council... ...about violations which were not yet known... ...that we reiterate findings from earlier reports... ...but we also hope that the Council expresses a commitment to Libya... ...in what is going to be a long journey to transition... and. The human rights violations and violations of international humanitarian law, for which we are responsible for reporting, are a critical part of that transition.
0: On the commission of crimes against humanity potentially and crimes and contraventions of international humanitarian law, the fact finding mission on Libya, of which you're a member, has started compiling a list of potential suspects. Uh, now, what will happen to this list? Who is going to see it and when will it be published?
1: So ultimately, you know, our instructions and mandate from the Council is that we must preserve the evidence. We're often asked about the list, but really it's the larger evidence of which this is a part, which is important. Because all of that evidence becomes part of the custody of the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and is now available based on the protocols adopted to be shared were useful for further investigations and prosecutions. So the hope is that that evidence later on serves the ends of accountability.
0: And is used to hopefully prevent crimes happening in future.
1: Absolutely. The whole idea of accountability is that accountability is essential to repairing those who have suffered, but also plays an important role in ensuring non-repetition.
0: My thanks then to Tracy Robinson from the Libya Fact-Finding Mission. Great to have the latest on the investigators' work and a better understanding of the situation in the country. That's it for this week. Next week we'll be catching up with the First Nation activists who've travelled thousands of miles from Western Australia to UN Geneva to try to protect their sacred art from destruction. Hope you'll be able to join us for that. Until then, bye-bye for now.